You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com. Hi, Rayma. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. Okay, we are talking to Rayma, partner 500 Startups, and I understand you cover Greater China. So what is 500 Startups like in North Asia? Great, sure. As you said, Bernard, I do cover Greater China, so that includes mainland China, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, for those of you who are unfamiliar with that term. And uh, right now, our strategy for 500 startups in Northern Asia, I'm assuming you're referring to uh, China, Korea, and Japan. We do have a colleague who is actually very focused on Korea, and his name is Tim Che. He is launching a Korean-focused microfund later on this year, so you guys will hear about it shortly. We have over 15 investments right now in Japan, actually, but we don't have someone on the investment team exclusively looking at Japanese investments. And part of that reason is because we have such good relationships in Japan that we just get so many inbound deals that the deal pretty much gets siloed to whoever is a domain expert in the space versus a geographic expert. Mm. So I guess I've asked you the question a little bit early, but I'm kind of interested in the story of Rayma. So you started off from the US with a background in investment banking or right. consulting. So how did you end up becoming a startup investor? Sure. I started off in Silicon Valley doing tech M&A and IPO coverage with Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley. And so I grew up in Silicon Valley, so I've always known, you know, I wanted to do something involved in tech. I studied EECS in college, etc. When I moved to China seven and a half years ago, I internally did a transfer and moved from tech to real estate because I wanted to be in China, but I always knew that was going to be a short-term play. After, you know, less than two years, I went on to a different role also within China and ended up in media private equity. That wasn't enough tech for me actually and I know I wanted to uh, get more into early stage investing after doing three years at the private equity fund. So when the opportunity came along to work with Dave at 500 which was both early stage and also a you know, heavy tech focus, I decided to go for it. So that is my story of how I came to uh, join 500. So in your course of becoming that early stage investor, did the experience from the private equity fund and your coverage of real estate and alt media help you in thinking about investing in startups in, in today's context? Yeah, definitely. I mean, all of the finance knowledge is useful, right? So while I was more used to dealing with very, very much later stage companies, so like an M&A, a lot of you know, pre-IPO companies uh, in private equity firm was looking at a lot of Series B-ish companies. So I had a very good understanding of what later stage investors look for, as well as sort of the technical aspects of what term sheets look like, what things that you negotiate on, as well as the negotiation process in general. So that was helpful. In terms of my experience in other industries, such as real estate and I would actually say, surprisingly, it's come in really handy. Like I said, I did a stint in real estate, and the last one I was at 
while it, we did look at some tech, including e-commerce, I did spend a lot of time on media and content. While that's not completely directly related to what I look at these days, my contacts in that space and the fact that I have a more sort of breadth of industry coverage allows me to understand a lot of opportunities in spaces that maybe someone who's exclusively focused on the technology aspect of or of the internet business might not be able to see. Like for example, real estate, we do have a portfolio, a very healthy portfolio in real estate technology actually. And that's one of the industries that's being very quickly transformed by the internet. So having worked in that space, although it was less than two years, gives me, I'd like to think, a slight advantage in understanding businesses arising out of that sector. For every investor, they have an investment thesis. So what is your investment thesis in terms of thinking about how you invest in a company? How I invest in a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, okay. So, well, I think, are you referring to more Maybe like the... what type of business I'm looking at or yeah. what types of businesses I'm looking at? And, and I say this on like LinkedIn and, and everywhere. So for founders who are involved in these businesses, feel free to get in touch. But I am very heavily focused on globalizable businesses. And out of China, that means cross-border businesses a lot of the time. So the reason I heavily emphasize that, and that may not be as great of an emphasis in some other markets, but in China, a lot of entrepreneurs are working on solutions for the existing domestic market. I am differentiated from other investors in that my focus tends to be on businesses that are cross-border from the get-go. So for example, we've invested in cross-border e-commerce, cross-border travel. My latest investment is actually a cross-border uh, translation company for publishing. That is a huge thesis for us. In the cross-border category, e-commerce is as I mentioned, a huge emphasis, as well as my personal favorite is education, because I think a lot of educational businesses are actually inherently able to be cross-border. Other than this you know, heavy global focus in China in particular, I am looking at sort of SMB SaaS services, and that is very nascent right now in China. So we have invested in a lot of such businesses in the U.S. and in, in some other geographies as well, such as Latin America. But in Asia right now, I find that these businesses are just starting to be created. And as we are very, very early stage investors at the seed stage, I think it's a really great time to get involved in uh, businesses like that. Usually you have talk about the kind of businesses that you invest in. How about the types of founders? I mean, what kind of founders excites you when you invest in the company itself? Yeah, so obviously everyone wants the really experienced founder with like domain expertise. And that's also, you know, what we all like at 500 as well. But I would say in, in Asia, I'm also very willing to take bets on first-time founders. And that's just because in many metropolitan areas, entrepreneurship is sort of a newer thing, right? So we don't have so many people who already have prior startup experience. But one of the most important things I do look for is a team that has worked together to push out product. And by what I mean 
by that is especially for first-time founding teams I find it really important to know that the team has worked together preferably for more than a year and has already launched a product so let's say they are working on a new mobile app I'd like to see that they've already launched a previous mobile app and regardless of what the performance has been obviously if the performance of their prior launch was awesome that's a huge plus but just the fact that the team has worked together and has their group dynamics down and has launched a product, you'll be amazed at how much that actually says about the viability uh, of the founders going forward. That's definitely something I look for. Another thing I do look for is complementary team members, right? So when you meet the entire team together and you ask you know, everyone to jump in and talk about the company's mission and what they're going to do in the next six months, you actually get a really good sense of who's in charge of what, whether or not the team members have a clear idea of each other's strengths and whether or not they really respect each other. So in that sense, I like to have face-to-face -face conversations. I like to involve multiple team members. That's become really important to me because while at 500, we are very heavily focused on the product and the traction of the product. At the same time, it is all about the execution ability of the team. I don't know if that answered uh, your question. So I, I would say there's just not a strict criteria, but the past experience of having launched a product together, I mm. think it's probably the top of my list. Mm. So let's talk about 500 startups started by Dave McClure. Very mm -hmm. well-known angel investor from Silicon Valley, and he's all over the world. In Southeast Asia, I think there's also a 500 startup setup um, that's run by Kylie Ng. Mm -hmm. And so what is 500 startups mission and what do, does it seek to empower founders and how does it go in helping founders once they invest in them? Our mission is, if you ask Dave, would be to fund the best entrepreneurs everywhere and anywhere, regardless of who they are or what they look like or what language they speak. So that is why we're active in so many geographies, right? So since our founding in July 2010, that's less than five years ago, we've already funded about a thousand companies in over 50 different countries. Of course, we don't have someone on the ground covering each country. We only have that for the really big markets, but we definitely have invested like on every continent, you know, in the world, except Antarctica, right? Mm. So uh, I think that that's our main uh, mission. We're very committed to diversity as well. Uh, besides, you know, geographic diversity, we're also committed to diversity in terms of our founder makeup. So we just released a blog that, that revealed our stats on how many women founders we back. And also we back other, you know, uh, we're, we're also racially diverse as well as, you know, diverse in terms of uh, sexual orientation. I think that for our strategy of managing our portfolio companies after we invest in them, I would say one of our main benefits of having joined, you know, 500, uh, the, the quote unquote 500 family that we have built is that we have a very close knit culture, not just on our team, right, within our sort of company culture, but within our greater founder community and including our mentors. So we have over 200 mentors who are very active. And we have now, because we've you know funded about a thousand companies, probably 2000 founders in our community. So we have an 
internal sort of digital community, what I'd like to call, you know, the 500 Quora or whatever, where we share wisdom and best practices with each other. And also uh, it's where our mentors schedule office hours, etc. So we provide very hands-on help by connecting mentors and resources um, with our founders, but our founders are also deeply connected to each other. And a lot of them end up joining forces and, you know, doing business deals together. They pass along investor contacts to each other. Uh, like I said, share knowledge. And, you know, once in a while, one of them acquires the other, actually. I would say that's our biggest value. Of course, as an investment professional, I, you know, me and everyone else in the investment team, we also do some portfolio management. But because we have such a large number of portfolio companies, I would definitely say that we are more of a, what I would call a pull model versus push. So we don't push our portfolio companies with a lot of things that we're always trying to do for them, but we do provide a lot of value when our portfolio companies come to us, right? And hopefully we've branded ourselves very well so that they know what to come to us for help in. Like for me, people come to me for help about China expansion or China strategy, right? For others, they may have a different domain expertise. And in addition, I do want to say that we have a team that's quickly growing called our distribution and growth team. And that's one of the core values that we add to our portfolio companies that for our accelerator companies, they get free sort of unlimited hands-on help with their distribution and internet marketing strategies. And for our uh, direct investment companies, our seed portfolio, they also have access to these experts through office hours or even through more involved consulting gigs. So that's something I think we add that's different from other uh, seed funds. Mm. That's very interesting given that other than knowing that you invest, you actually have an entire network to kind of support and help the entrepreneurs. I also want to sort of talk to you about the conferences. So um, I've been an active follower of 500 Startups through the YouTube channel. I like your mm -hmm. pre-money conference, your distro conference. I think recently you have something called Warm Gun, which is for design conference, basically. Right. Are you planning to bring some of these into Asia? Because I understand that it's very, very contextual to the Silicon Valley U.S. portfolio, but I think most of the lessons learned there actually can be translated to this part of the world. Yeah, I think so for some of the thematic conferences, I know for pre-money, we're looking at bringing to Asia. It's just sort of resource constraints on our event team and our corporate sponsors that's preventing us from doing it sooner. Mm. We just don't have enough manpower or a budget, but that's definitely, I think, one of the first ones that we're looking to bring over. And for the other more verticalized or discipline specific conferences that you uh, mentioned, we are definitely interested in bringing those over as well. But once again, it's a resource constraint. Mm. One of the things that I am doing though with my team uh, in Greater China is that we're on a very small scale, we're bringing over um, mentors and our distribution team. You know, the people I mentioned before that are sort of quote-unquote growth hackers or able to really help companies jumpstart their internet marketing and analytics disciplines in the companies. I'm bringing them over for a trip to the areas that I cover, namely Taipei and Hong Kong at the end of March for a uh, seven-day trip. I'm looking at doing more things like that on a small scale. So I don't know if you would call it like an event. As you know, we do run our geeks on a plane 
where we take, you know, 40 to 50 people from Silicon Valley to another part of the world. I call this mentors on a plane. It's much, much smaller. I'm only bringing over five people this time. It's sort of a pilot program. But I like to do more of that in the future where we will provide more, less of a conference style, but more of one-on-one office hours and hands-on help as well as distribution-focused workshops for Asia-based startups. Mm, I do recall my first experience with Dave was actually on the gigs on the plane for Southeast Asia. I oh, think okay. on the, it was quite funny because on the first night, someone dropped me a call and said they just got in and they need a local guide in Singapore to take them around. So uh-huh. I became their local guide and we were some t- stuck around like at about 9pm and we have to find a place for them to dine because they just landed. <laughs> So it was a very good, great experience. In fact, I've seen a couple of gigs on the plane. I think there is going to be some gigs on the plane coming in this year, right? Yeah, we usually, uh, I think in the past, we've done as many as four in a year, typically three, but this year we might just do two. And actually, just to add to that, I met Dave myself on a gigs on a plane trip. So I had a friend who got funded by 500 and asked me if I could introduce Dave to a few angel investors I knew in China. So that that's how I met Dave when he was over in Beijing for uh, GOP. It's interesting to always have situations where someone got funding from 500 startups or from yourself as an angel investor as well. What happens to founders that you don't invest? How do they actually, I think this is a general question usually asked mm-hmm. by founders to me, what if an investor didn't invest? I mean, you have written some articles about this. Well, how do founders build their rapport with investors, even if the investors do not invest? In? Yeah, okay, yeah. So because I, I did get asked this a lot, and especially I think in Asia, like I said, where the culture of entrepreneurship is a little bit less mature than in Silicon Valley, there aren't as many sort of, I guess, well-known best practices on how to build rapport with investors. I did write an article about this for Tech in Asia, and basically the main things I talk about and which I found to work for companies, given their feedback as well as how I've interacted with them, is that number one, just make sure when you do talk to investors, you know exactly what they're investing in. In this day and age, especially if they're a more Western, a more Westernized investor or investor that's more familiar with like sort of platforms such as AngelList, you can see what their investments, prior investments are, right? So you can really do a lot of research before you even meet the investor and decide whether or not you even want to have that conversation, first of all. Second of all, I really think communication is most important. So sometimes you may have just one opportunity to meet with an investor. You know, you may not have too many chances for follow up in person, face to face, but you want to make a good impression the first time. You want to be concise and have a pitch ready and you want to create opportunities for follow up. So one of the easiest ways, and I've told multiple companies to do this and some of them have done it to their great success, is to just create an investor slash advisor newsletter where you disclose, you know, some, some stats, maybe not stuff that's too overly sensitive about your business but you keep you know sort of people that you think might be interested in your business either as business partners or as potential investors or potential hires whatever sort of updated on a monthly basis so you're not flooding their inbox but you're you know building up credibility that way and sometimes you know a company might be too early for me to invest in but if i can see that you know over a, a few months not 
not too many because we do invest fairly early over a few months that you know they're consistently sort of hitting their targets and executing it's it's becomes much easier to make a bet on the team than you know just having a one-off meeting and no follow-up so I, i really think sort of like consistent communications and follow-up is super important and vital to building up credibility because it's really just all about saying you're going to do something you know by a certain time and then showing that you actually did it no matter how small the goal is that's a lot of really what we're looking for as investors sometimes is that you know you have the ability to set goals you know what your team is capable of and you have some ability to execute and hopefully exceed them are there any founders that you didn't do the investment the first time around, but they eventually convince you to invest in them? Yeah, definitely. I would say probably like half the companies had a really strong interest. The, the half the companies I inv- ended up investing in had a really strong interest the first time. And then the other half probably took, you know, uh, a, at least one or two more meetings. And some of them were too early when I first met them, but were able to convince me. Like for example, Shopline out of Hong Kong, mm. when I first met them, I thought they were really interesting, but I felt like I needed to see more data. And then two months later, I felt like they had really hit, I guess, their vision that they had you know, articulated to me two months earlier. And then I felt that that was enough sort of belief that I could make and bet uh, on bringing them to our accelerator in Silicon Valley. Mm. So Shopline is a Hong Kong investor company. In fact, it's mentioned by one of our earlier guests, um, Casey Lau from Startups HK. So yeah, okay. um, they recently <laughs> just did another round, right? I think. Yeah, yeah. They raised um, like 1.2 million, I think, from mm. um, what, a what, consortium of other investors. Yeah. What, what do you see is the uh, core competitive advantage in that space? I think, to be honest, I think they're trying to figure it out. But for Shopline specifically, I would say the team is very good at understanding the local market. So a lot of the global players, actually there are not very many global players, so the main one being Shopify, they are not localized for, they're they're not like super localized, right? So in the sense that, you know, you may have language support, but for the way offline vendors do business here in Asia, a lot of vendors are less sophisticated, right? So for example, when I talked to Shopline, like a lot of their uh, customers didn't even know how to get their own domain name, right? And wasn't quite sure like the process involved in setting up e-commerce, whereas e-commerce in the West is a lot better understood and everyone sort of knows, oh, I have to have an e-commerce strategy and they don't have very basic infrastructure issues because so much of that infrastructure such as payments and logistics or whatever has been built in and so shopline needs to do i would say that's their challenge as well as advantage that the infrastructure is much more nascent here Uh, the customers need a lot more education but because they're local and because they're so focused on servicing this market then they're able to develop more customized solutions that i think um, might not be worth the effort frankly for a larger player so how about the other companies under your portfolio that are very interesting for example pantry yeah oh, oh um that's actually a u.s company but US i just company. wanted to wow. yeah yeah so i just wanted to bring that up as mm. an example of a trend that we're looking at which is um, we're trying to invest more in sort of uh, smart hardware investments and for me in particular on the investment team because i'm based in china and because China continues to be the main manufacturing hub for hardware. So I'm 
increasingly focused on that as well. And so actually, I would be remiss in not mentioning hardware as one of my core investment theses Mm -hmm. for 2015, in addition to, you know, cross-border and SaaS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Pantry is a uh, smart vending machine based on RFID technology. And they're actually being manufactured out of the U.S. right now because they're small volume. But I am trying to help them look at, you know, opportunities to collaborate with Chinese consumer brands and hopefully uh, move some of the parts that can be more commoditized to Asia, uh, specifically, probably southern China. Mm. And yeah, a couple other investments I can talk about Mm. that are more Asia based. So we already mentioned a shop line out of Hong Kong. Fiber Read is my newest Beijing based Mm. investment. So they're in our accelerator right now in batch 12. They are uh, trying to do cross border publishing. So only 1% of English books, actually, probably less than 1% of new English books published every year make it into China, mainly because of the translation issue. There's just not enough translators and enough margin embedded in the traditional publishing process, right? It takes a really long time, it's expensive, etc. So FiberRead is, I'd like to think, based out of a group of professional translators and people who like to read, who want to see more content, quality content being published from other languages, starting off with English into Chinese. And this is an experienced team who's worked on a similar initiative before, but has decided to further uh, refine the business model. So I think they're a good example of both the cross-border thesis that I have, as well as you know an experienced team that's worked together before and who has domain expertise in the business. So by the time I met them, they'd already published 20 books and they had published the number one selling book on Amazon Kindle in China. I just think that it's a really interesting business model. Maybe it doesn't sound super sexy, but the way they've constructed their business model is very low capex, which we like, and very much a defensible, I think, competitive advantage. And then another company that we've invested in is Roman Wander out of Taiwan. Once again, sort of hardware and software thesis. They're making toys, smart toys for little kids. The company actually had a lot of trouble with a sort of retail channels. That's one thing I also learned that even if you have a great award-winning product, it might be difficult to sell through traditional retail channels and is now doing a pivot, but is actually doing really well. Uh, Still focused on toys, still focused on smart apps for a a little bit more educational based for two to five-year-olds, but very smart team, like I said, has been uh, doing really well and has created a lot of valuable IP. Finally, another China-based company, I think, that hits our SaaS model. Uh, we invested in Micro Benefits. It's a company that delivers a human resource solution to large factories. So there's a social responsibility component here, but basically they provide an app that lets factories sort of manage uh, their workers, provide trainings, give daily deals, you know, do other sort of HR functions. But the end result in that the reason why factories are willing to pay for this is because uh, it lowers employee churn and it increases uh, productivity. That's a SaaS business model. And a lot of people think that especially factories in China would never pay for something like this, but they would be wrong. If you can demonstrate like a clear cost benefit, I think analysis, uh, there are definitely you know opportunities to create really thriving SaaS businesses in China. If I look at a company like Micro Benefits, it's a very interesting case of a similar company in the U.S. called Zenefits, but they 
it's actually customized to the local level focusing on local needs. Do you see that being the trend of a lot of companies in Asia? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's super similar to Zenefits, but mm. yes, definitely there are in Asia, you see a lot of, I actually think it's less of necessarily cloning business models, but mm. that there are sort of a finite combination of business models. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I agree with uh, you especially, that. Yeah, especially for certain industries. I mean, some some just natural, you know, whether it be like network effects or just like the way whatever cash flows through the system, it sort of just natural, naturally evolves, right? Certain ways that you sell software to these industries. So I, I think that for a lot of businesses in Asia, it's not necessarily copying, it's just, mm. you know, using the most optimal way of charging for a service. Mm. I mean, there's also reverse knowledge transfer now if you see even in the messaging app space right a lot of the um, facebook is actually taking a leaf from wechat from tencent so it's yeah, it's, yeah. It's back and forth I, i'm sure that if i look at micro benefits i i don't see it work in the us but i see it worked in a lot of emerging markets even india even indonesia brazil they will have factories they will need services like that to increase productivity and there is a clear value proposition yeah yeah i mean we hope so <laughs> it's a slow process uh, it's definitely not easy working with factories and i highly commend the team for really sticking with it but they are definitely seeing some success and it would be great to see this model replicated in, in other countries i think because it does really bring a lot of value mm. to the workers you have been in the early stage investing space how do you see early stage investing growing in China? Yeah, so I'm very lucky in that because I've been in China for the past seven and a half years, like I said, and I was in Beijing, which is really, quote unquote, the Silicon Valley of China. I really saw angel investing take off from probably its very beginnings. I would say probably three and a half years ago was when angel investing really started to catch on. Before that, the space was probably you know, entire country of China, which is very big, at least in the internet sector, is probably dominated by like a handful of angel investors who were able to ask for pretty onerous terms because of the fact that they were uh, one of the very few people willing to bet on early stage startups. It's completely changed since that time. It's become, actually, it's more expensive in China, at least as of now, as of right now, right, Q1 2015, than in a lot of Silicon Valley deals. So I would say there's just been a huge influx of capital into this seed investment space in China. Uh, you know, you have thousands of angel investors now and a couple hundred of seed funds, a lot of whom were established last year. So in the last 12 to 18 months, a lot of new funds were established. Mm. And I think that's, you know, in a way, maybe it's a little it's a little bit overheated, but overall, it's really great for the ecosystem. I would say definitely China is probably second most active outside of the US right now in terms of early stage tech investment. It's just creating a positive cycle where, you know, there's more investment, then there's more entrepreneurs, and then the entrepreneurs get better, right? And then more investors, I think, come in. So um, while there might be some, you know, corrections coming in in the future, <laughs> hopefully in terms of valuations, I think overall this this is a very healthy trend. Mm. Are there any notable angels or even super angels like a Ron Conway equivalent in China? In Zhongguancun, right? That's where the Chinese yeah. Silicon Valley is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, Ron Conway equivalents. I think there are multiple, right? So um, people aren't as, I guess, like their, their investment strategies are still being defined right now. Mm. So I wouldn't say that it's as clear cut as Silicon Valley, right? Where you have like people have very clearly defined like investment amounts stage as well as sector. And in China right now, I think just the uh, stage sometimes mm-hmm. and the investment imp- amount might be a little bit more clear but a lot of people are still very generalist in terms of how they invest mm-hmm. so there are probably still that you know dozen or so quote unquote super angels in china that dominate so xu xiaoping at gen fund you know who created his own fund and is now on his third fund actually is a su- well-known super angel so they've backed close to i think triple digits in companies now in the past three years or so actually dave that was one of the investors i took a uh, Dave to meet when he was here on the gope trip that i i met him on so and and i remember sitting down with mr shu whose uh, english name is bob and at Pacific Coffee, and he said, I'm sorry, we have to meet here, but this is our first day of establishing our fund, and our office isn't open yet. So so you can see how how young the industry was, because or is, because that was just end of 2011. Uh, and he's one of the most active uh, seed stage investors in China. You know, his co- other co-founders in New Oriental are also very active. I would say as corporate entities, there are numerous... EVPs and SVPs from Alibaba and Tencent who've come out and are active angel investors. I won't mention their names here because I don't Mm. think that they're that famous outside of China. Mm. But also um, another one is um, Lei Jun. Lei Jun is um, the founder of Xiaomi but has his own fund. Although that fund is a little bit more, I think, stage agnostic versus exclusively focused on on seed. There are many, many sort of serial entrepreneurs who are now putting money back into the ecosystem, partly because I think they see it as a great opportunity, but definitely partly because they, they do want to give back because I've spoken to entrepreneurs who've had major exits that that is one of the things they very much want to do. In fact, I was talking to Hans Tong in the last episode and he was he's an early stage investor of Xiaomi. Yes. He, he made this comment to me that, that I think that no one in Silicon Valley has yet to, as in Legion actually leveraged his angel investing skills to build up the Xiaomi ecosystem. Whereas you don't see that happening that much in the US where you where you have a very successful angel investor as well as a very successful CEO of a up and coming company. Yeah. Hans did very, very, very well with Xiaomi. Very yeah. excited. Okay. So. so I want to ask you, getting into China, there definitely for the local Chinese is home ground. How about mm-hmm. foreign entrepreneurs who wants to set up in China? Given that you deal a lot with cross-border type startups, I mean whether it's e-commerce, whether it's ebooks related, mm-hmm. etc. What are your tips for them to set up in China? Yeah, so I think it, it's definitely a challenge, right? And it, who knows, it may be even more challenging in the future mm-hmm. as the Chinese internet seems to be kind of concerned about how uh, open or closed uh, the entire internet will be. But 
I think that foreign um, entrepreneurs definitely have an advantage in more sort of cutting edge technologies where they have specific domain expertise. So I did also write an article for Tech in Asia about this. You know, listeners feel free to Google. But one of the examples I do like to give is my friend Sol, who was the CTO at Lending Club who is now a CEO of his own peer-to-peer lending company in China and recently received investment from Tiger Global, which is, you know, mm. serious business. So I think that if you have, I think Seoul is just such a great example. He's never been to China or lived in China prior to starting the new company, which is called dnrong.com. Uh, but because he had such strong domain expertise and he was able to find a great and trustworthy local Chinese partner, um, he was able to build up the uh, the business very quickly and he has a very differentiated understanding I think from other local entrepreneurs the more I would say in general the the more technical or specific domain expertise your business needs right the more likely you're going to find success in China so if you're just doing a very sort of commoditized let's say food delivery business that's very heavily focused on execution and you know managing scale then unless you have some, I don't know, some like proprietary algorithm or something, it might be very difficult to compete with local competitors. And of course, if you're an expat entrepreneur, then anything cross-border is, like you said, inherently an advantage for you because of the fact that you typically need to leverage right both sides of the ocean, you need to speak two languages and be culturally fluent in two different business contexts. Mm. Reminds me of one of the startups invested by Benjoff, who is uh-huh. called Simeon. I think the development was in China, but the market is actually outside of China. Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 Yep. I, I know those guys. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you a little to talk a little bit about uh, corporate social responsibility. I understand that you invested in companies that are really focused on education, mm-hmm. and also you're definitely a very successful early stage investor in your own right. What are the activities are you engaged in in that space? And tell our audience a little bit about how to get involved in it. I I seen you involved with things like startup grind and. A couple mm-hmm. other initiatives so maybe you can give a give some thought on that oh uh, sure yeah well start of grind is just something i i've been doing i actually really need to apologize for derek for having yeah, been yeah, too yeah. busy to hold events in beijing in the past few months but uh let's just buy our side chats and s- sort of bring successful mm-hmm. entrepreneurs uh, to talk about their experiences and I've been very lucky to be able to get a couple of high-profile entrepreneurs to talk very openly about their successes and failures. I think for education in particular, that's one of my sector focuses. So it's not just for you know social responsibility, but I think it's a very profitable opportunity for startups and it's ripe disruption mm-hmm. <laughs> in, uh, in terms of technology. I personally am very interested in education. I'm actually um, completing a master's in education right now, remotely so they're online uh, methods Um, and I'm also devoting you know not a super significant but a a chunk of time every week to helping out learn lab which is a new education accelerator that I'm helping to launch in Beijing probably in May with the nonprofit called teach for China under the teach for all umbrella Mm. and the idea is that technology is going to be one of the fastest ways that we can affect change in education and education right directly impacts people's livelihoods and in Asia in particular because it it is such a culture that's 
so heavily focused on education, I think it's a great opportunity for startups because you have so many parents who are willing to pay a lot of money to make sure their kids receive the best quality education. Actually, even in the schools, while I think on a per capita basis, maybe the number is not very high per student, but on a percentage basis, we're still talking about very, very significant dollars being poured into education by the government uh, in the public sphere. And in the private sphere, private education and after school education in you know greater china in particular is, is just insane right so i've seen you know numerous startups that actually have very good cash flows a focus on the education sector of course it depends on what you do but just to give you an example we have a company called locomotive labs which does a math based app for k2 and they came to me because they found that 40% of their users were coming from China, even though they did zero branding. All they did was release a Chinese version and put it up in the Chinese app store. And they're only available on iOS right now. And they were shocked how quickly China shot up to, you know, their main country. Or to be, I guess, their second biggest country after the U.S. with zero support and customer service and zero content localization. So I think there are actually a lot of opportunities like that, that entrepreneurs may not be aware of, that when you do an education app or service for a certain geography, you might find that it's very easy to be global, maybe more so than some of the other uh, software services out there. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, now we come to the end. So Reba, can you tell our audience how we find you? in the internet yeah sure i'm very easy to find my name is spelled uh r-u-i even though it's pronounced ray that's because it's uh chinese last name is ma m-a so you can basically find me at uh twitter that's probably my most active account social media account or follow me on facebook although i i post lots of random things on facebook but on twitter i'm pretty heavily focused on just sharing tech and uh, China-related trends, and hopefully you find some of the things I uh, post about interesting. And I do try to write somewhat regularly for Tech in Asia, Forbes, TechCrunch, etc. I've been quite busy lately, so haven't contributed nearly as much as I would like. I have to ask, you have a WeChat account too, right? <laughs> I do have a WeChat account. Yes, that's right. And feel free to add me on WeChat. That is one of the easiest ways to reach me because of VPN in uh, China. So I'm not always available on some of those other social networks. And my WeChat is also very easy to remember. It's Miss Rayma, M-I-S-S-R-U-I. MA. Oh, okay. Oh, and think... you can always email me at rui at 500.co. Ah. Um, yeah, but I, I am a little bit slow sometimes um, mm. when it comes to replying email. I think it's uh, Dave rubbing off on me. So. <laughs> okay. Well, you can find me at bleungcw or at bernardleung.com or you can follow us at analyzeasia.com or at analyzeasia with an S. Uh, we are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Ah. And uh, Rima, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. But we will talk again at some point in time. Okay, thank you, Bernard.